Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here this morning. And I'd say, Brent, there's probably one more reminder that God's given you through the pulled hamstring thing. It's that you're getting old. That's probably the most obvious one. Uh, part of the whole package, I guess. Uh, but but uh, great to see all of you here this morning, Lord. We, uh, we are uh, going to be looking at uh, this morning God's Word from uh, Revelation as we continue our series called Revealed. And as we start this morning, we're going to be in chapter 13, so you can go ahead and find your way uh, to chapter 13 in the book of Revelation, which we'll be talking about here in a minute. But as we begin this morning, I want you to imagine something with me uh, for a minute, if you would. I want you to imagine this morning that uh, as a Christian, your faith makes you a target in a certain reality or a scenario where everyone who is around you, maybe except for a few friends at church, uh, see you as a target because of your faith. And not just in the sense that you, know, you might get mocked or you might get ridiculed or looked down upon because you believe uh, in, in God or you believe in Jesus or whatever it may be or you call yourself a Christian, but in a way that uh, if the wrong person were to find out that you were a follower of Jesus, that you would be a target in such a way that maybe on a Tuesday night as you're eating dinner around your dinner table that your door could be kicked in and that government officials could rush in and take you and your family off to prison and as they arrest you and throw you into jail, they confiscate your home and all your belongings so that even if you make it out of jail, you wouldn't have anything to come back to. And as you're being arrested, you realize that you may never see maybe some of the members of your family that are all being taken in different directions, including maybe your children. Think about all that you would have to lose in that scenario. Your family, your freedom, your livelihood, your home, everything you own, possibly your life and your freedom as well. Now imagine that almost everyone you know outside of the small community of maybe your church family or the people you go to church with could report you to the governing authorities at any given time, your neighbors, your coworkers, maybe even family members, and that any moment this could happen in your reality. As you imagine yourself in that situation, what kinds of concerns would come to mind? What kinds of fears? What kinds of questions? What kinds of doubts? If you were to think about it, would your faith in Jesus hold up in that situation? What would be the line in the sand for you? I would go this far, but I wouldn't be able to lose that. I wouldn't be able to lose my family. I wouldn't be able to lose my freedom. I wouldn't be able to lose my life. That's a small window into what the Christians were facing in the first century under Roman Empire as the book of Revelation was written to them. And as we read in the very first part of this letter in chapters 2 and 3, especially when Jesus speaks to the churches, the seven messages that he gives to them, he tells them repeatedly, each one of those churches, to overcome. That's his command and that's his calling to them. Because, of course, they had a lot to overcome in their daily lives. That was their reality. And with all that in mind, what would it take for you to overcome in the same way? To stay faithful in the midst of the kind of resistance and real persecution and sacrifice that might be demanded in that scenario to follow Jesus. Let me suggest just a couple of things that I think would be necessary for all of us in that situation. The first would be that what we actually believe we consider to be actually really true. <laughs> right? I mean, it's one thing to come in here on Sunday morning and say that we believe that what we are reading in the Bible is God's word, it is his very word to us, and it is truth to us that God has created us, that Jesus has died on the cross for us, that he rose again from the dead, and that even now he is in his heavenly throne ruling over the world, and uh, that he will come back again someday with his new creation and make everything right, that he will come back for us and we will dwell with him forever. It's one thing to say all those things on a Sunday morning in this room. It's maybe even another thing to walk outside and believe those things on a daily basis in the world that we live in, in the culture that we live in, in the place that we live in. But what about when those things come face to face with having to lose something to believe that truth? With having to sacrifice something to believe that truth? Second, in addition to believing that this is true, I think the other thing that we need, that all of us would need in this case, would be to believe that Jesus is actually worth it. That Jesus and his kingdom, that Jesus and his presence, that Jesus and his promises are worth it. 
Because when you're faced with such a clear distinction between, or a decision between one thing and another, Jesus and my job, Jesus and my freedom, Jesus and my family, maybe even Jesus and my life, there's no room for pretense in that kind of equation. It is either just Jesus or the thing that I might lose. And in the end, all of us decide to follow the thing that's most worth it. Now, here's the thing. That's a horrifying decision to think about. It's a horrifying decision to have to make. But it's not one that is completely without, um, without reality. It was a reality for John, who wrote this book, as he was exiled to the prison island of Patmos as a result of his faith. And as we know, as we know from history, John probably died on that island in exile. He lost everything that he had to believe in Jesus. It's also still a reality for many Christians today in other parts of the world. This is not just a historical thing that happened one time 2,000 years ago. And so this is not a fictional horror story. This is real life for some in history and real life for even some in the church today. So here's the question for us as we begin this morning. Is God's word true? And how true is it? Is Jesus worth it? And how worth it is Jesus? Now, God understands that in a lot of ways, we are, when we are moving through this idea of what it means to overcome, and not just harsh, real, you know, life or death persecution, but just overcoming on a daily basis to believe and to trust in Jesus in the everyday struggles in our lives, there are always going to be questions and doubts. And that's, that is why there is a book like this, like what we have with the book of Revelation, is that what God is doing for us, and especially in the first part of this book, is focus, uh, focusing us on the reality of Jesus and the ministry of who he is and what he has done, the worthiness of Jesus. It's as if God is saying, look, uh, do you want to know if you can trust me? Look at Jesus. Look at the gospel. Look at the lamb who was slain on your behalf. Do you want to know how much I can love you or how much I love you? Look at Jesus. How much more can I love you than that? And knowing this, I think that is where we have tried to keep our focus in this series, right? If you've been with us through this series, you know that one of the focuses that we've had, or at least two of the focuses that we had, have been directly related to these ideas. One, understanding the book of Revelation as God's truth to us, knowing that this is a book that's not meant to be neglected, it's not meant to be ignored, it's not just kind of the the stepchild that hangs out at the end of the Bible, that it actually is a big part of God's truth. It holds a lot of things together as far as God's redemptive plan and what God will end up doing in the end. It gives us real true hope in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of a world that's sometimes very unclear and can be hopeless. And second, we've brought everything to a place where we have focused it on Jesus. As many times and as many places as we can, we have tried to tie this back to Jesus repeatedly over and over again. What does this have to show us about the worthiness of the one who is portrayed as the lamb who was slain, as the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? And from, his, and from his place as sovereign Lord on his throne, as the lamb who was slain, the very king of kings and the eternal judge, we have hopefully seen over and over again how Jesus is worth it. I believe these are the things that are important to remember as we continue uh, to get into one of the most debated, maybe some might say the most confusing chapters in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. And before we launch into that chapter today, I think this is important that all of those things are important to remember, right? We talked about last week, our focus and interpretation has been Christ and context. The two big C's, I would say, of really all biblical interpretation, but especially the book of Revelation, have been Christ and context. Jesus and understanding the context and the connection there. And so as we launch in to Revelation chapter 13 today, we're going to be starting in verse 11. We'll finish out the chapter. It's going to go to verse 18. But I want to remind us of where we're at in terms of speaking of context. We're in the middle of a scene that is a part of John's Revelation vision, which makes up a large part of this book, that started basically back in the beginning of chapter 12. And at the beginning of chapter 12, John describes a scene that he sees that God reveals to him of a seven-headed red dragon who is standing before a woman who is pregnant about ready to give birth. And the child who is born, the, the dragon is standing there so that he can devour the child who is born. We've talked about what this means. This means that this is meant to show us and represent the fact that the dragon himself is Satan, that Jesus, rep Jesus is represented by the child here, and the woman represents God's people. Now, as a result of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, in the image we are in the, in the scene, we see Jesus escapes 
the attack of the dragon goes on into heaven to the throne, and he escapes the threat of the dragon. The dragon's upset because he's defeated, but then he begins a a war in heaven, is defeated as a result of the war in heaven, and is cast down to the earth. And so because of his defeat and failing to devour the child, because of his uh, defeat and the war in heaven, he's now on the earth, and he's angry, and he's frustrated. He's enraged, actually, I should say. And so he chases after the woman. He continues to chase after God's people on the earth. The woman finds her way into the wilderness where God leads her. God protects her there, but the dragon continues to attack. And as we've said, he continues to attack even into this day. Now, what we're meant to understand from this, what this teaches us, is some very important things then about what we experience in the everyday spiritual world, what we understand about what God's been doing since the beginning and where God's bringing everything to the end. In other words, how the spiritual realities impact our everyday world, and where this world is headed, where history is headed. It tells us, of course, about, among other things, that Satan has been trying to usurp God's authority from the beginning. And once he realized that God's plan was through this child, through Jesus, to redeem all creation, Satan tried to destroy the child. But of course, he was defeated because of Jesus' cross, resurrection, and ascension to the throne. And because of that, and since that time, Satan has been a defeated enemy who continues to fight against God's people and to fight against God's plans and purposes in the world. He's enraged against it, and he relentlessly attacks it wherever he can. But what we, what we realize in the end, and the hope that we have, is that he cannot destroy God's people or God's plans. He's a defeated enemy, and as much as he may attack, he does not have ultimate and will not have ultimate victory. And so Revelation 12 provides all of that as a heading for us so that when we get into Revelation 13, we see more detail about how this happens. In other words, specifically, how is it that Satan continues to attack God's people and God's plans in the world? In Revelation 12, he's a dragon who spews out a river attacking the woman in the wilderness. But what exactly does that look like? Because we realize that's just a metaphor for what Satan actually does in the world. And so we begin to see that here in chapter 13, represented again by a couple of images and symbols, two different beasts, a beast that comes from the sea, which we talked about last week, and we mentioned that that beast from the sea is associated kind of with the powers of the world, associated with kind of uh, the the power players and and kings, in particular kings and kingdoms uh, in the world and throughout history. And then today we're going to talk about the beast that comes from the land. And although these beasts are kind of similar in the sense that they're both sent by the dragon, they have the same kind of authority, same kind of calling generally, there is a distinction between the two, and in the distinction between the two, we actually see a little bit more about what God is trying to tell us about how these work, how these beasts work in the world. So we got a lot to talk about today. It's uh, it may seem short. It is going to be about eight verses or so. Uh, I had someone say to me actually this past week, "How are you going to get an entire sermon out of just eight verses?" And I said to him, actually, the challenge is going to be getting it down to one message, because I could really do probably three sermons on just this one section. But, so we're going to try to do that. We've got a lot of work in front of us and a lot to talk about today, so um, we're going to look at that here in verse 11 uh, through 18. So let's read that now, and then we've got a lot to kind of unpack as we move forward. It says this in verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or their forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Yeah, so there we go. This is where we're at in Revelation, right? For some of you, you've been waiting for this week from the very beginning. Uh, but this chapter, of course, is, what, is part of what makes Revelation 13 kind of one of these difficult chapters to understand and kind of debated in, 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 in a lot of ways because there's a reference to both 
what, although it doesn't say the Antichrist, the understanding of this idea of an Antichrist, and then, of course, 666, the mark of the beast. So we're going to talk about those few things in a minute, but I want to lay, again, a good foundation for us. The part of the scene, this part of the scene represents for us or presents to us the second beast. And although he is a beast directed by a dragon and given the authority a lot like the first beast, there are a lot of distinctions between the two. And let's talk about the distinctions that we see here because I think they're important to point out. They have a lot to do with kind of the ultimate message of this section. First, he comes from the earth rather than the sea like the first beast did. Second, his appearance is different. He has two horns instead of ten horns. And, as of, and, and whereas the first beast had seven heads with seven crowns, there's no reference to the heads or the crowns or anything on this second beast. So we can assume that he maybe has, you know, I don't know, one head with no crowns. We'll just assume that, right? But the point is he doesn't have the seven heads and he doesn't have the crowns. Third, his primary function seems to be to lead people to worship or to have devotion towards the first beast. Okay, whereas the first beast we saw all the claims to the blasphemous claims and you know he was kind of a direct affront to the authority of God causing people to worship him the second beast doesn't direct devotion to himself but directs it to the first beast and then fourth his actions listed are different than the first beast whereas the first beast was described as powerful and again he aimed his direction or he aimed his actions towards God almost directly at God's authority and God's throne um, in this case the second beast works by deception and his deceptions are, are aimed at the inhabitants of the earth. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that aspect of subtle deception and what he does. So what does all this mean? Well, let's start with the beast's appearance. Again, John sees him coming from the land, and his appearance is obviously a smaller, uh, kind of a smaller version or a subservient version of the first beast, right? And he is distinct in what he does. We talked about all the different actions and that kind of thing. But what he seems to be doing is pointing, again, all the direction towards the first beast. The first beast has the stature and power, and the second beast operates kind of in a role in which he uh, operates by deception, right? And so I think in a lot of ways we can connect the second beast to what is identified as the false prophet in the chapters to come. We're going to see that in the chapters to come in Revelation. There's a reference to a false prophet. I think this figure and that false prophet are one and the same. And that title, that understanding, helps us understand a little bit more about what the second beast does. Essentially, the false prophet does what many of the other biblical prophets do, what God's prophets do, except they do it, he does it for the wrong side, and he speaks falsity instead of truth. Right? So where God's prophets spoke the words of God and demonstrated signs and wonders from God and spoke about Jesus and turned people towards devotion to God, devotion to Yahweh, devotion towards the Lord, the false prophet mirrors those activities in somewhat of a deceptive way. He speaks the words of Satan, or the words of the dragon, as it says here in chapter 13. And he demonstrates signs and wonders that come from the dragon's authority, and he speaks about the beast or the Antichrist and tries to turn people's devotion towards him and away from God and the Lord Jesus. Now, even in this description, he's said to speak the words of the dragon. And as you think about the signs and wonders that he might um, perform, for example, I think it calls to mind maybe a situation like what happened during the Exodus, right? If you remember during the Exodus, um, where Moses was before Pharaoh and was demonstrating signs and wonders that came from God before Pharaoh, Pharaoh then called in the Egyptian magicians, and they came and they tried to replicate or imitate those signs and wonders that, were, that God was working through Moses. This is kind of a similar kind of idea and representation, is that the beast tries to replicate those kinds of things so that he can deceive and trick those, as it says in this chapter, so that he might deceive and trick those who see it and who observe it. And I don't think in every case it's necessarily referring to miraculous demonstrations and signs and wonders. In some cases, they may be much more subtle. Satan knows that his goal is not necessarily just to amaze people, but actually to own people. And so, in some cases, it might be just to give a little taste of the fruit. Maybe just a sense of control or a sense of, of wealth or status or something that knits us closer to the world and away from God. In, in the Screwtape Letters uh, book that was written by C.S. Lewis, which is one of my favorite books, just kind of on a commentary of what spiritual warfare looks like, he says this. He says, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, build up in him a sense of really being at home 
in the earth. Now, as I read this and as I think about what is going on here, the deception of the beast, I think about that's exactly what the beast is trying to accomplish in many different ways. It's to knit us into a place where we are at home at, on the earth. And we're going to get to that in here in just a few minutes. But as we progress through these descriptions, you might be picking up on some more of the pattern that develops here. You see that in many ways the beast is, is, is really a false imitation of God and a false imitation of the Lamb. Look how similar the descriptions are between the representation of Jesus and in some ways the beast here, especially with references to the, horn, to the horns in, in, chat, in, the ver, in the first verse there, in verse 11. Uh, John actually makes a contrast between the horns of the beast and the horns of the Lamb. Horns represent power, as we've talked about before. And so what we see here is essentially the beast is trying to mimic or counterfeit the authority of Jesus in the world. Remember earlier, last week, we talked about how the worship of the beast was described as people yelling out, who is like the beast? Basically, appropriating the phrase from the Old Testament where God's people would say, who is like the Lord our God, over and over again. And you see the connections are deliberate, and we start to see a pattern here. The message is that it is in opposition to Jesus, who is the Lamb and His kingdom. That's the activity of the beast. But the dragon attacks by mimicking the truth and providing a parody of the Lamb. And so his mode of operation is deception, using lies to accomplish that deception. And as he, and it, and as he builds on the deception, sometimes subtle, many times subtle, most times subtle, he leads to destruction. So his goal is destruction and his mode is deception. Now, of course, it makes sense as to why he leads by deception, right? No one who knows or believes the truth about the dragon or the beast is going to worship it, right? I mean, we're not tempted if you, if you were walking down the street, if you walked out of this building this morning and you saw a seven-headed red dragon walking down the road, you wouldn't think to yourself, that looks like a nice creature. I wonder what he would say about what I should do about my life, right? You'd probably run the other way. And that's the idea about this, is that Satan doesn't come to us as a seven-headed dragon. He comes to us masquerading as an angel of light. And it's revelation that shows us that he is really the seven-headed red dragon and that he has beasts that are behind the scene working this, personified beasts, imaged beasts, working in a way that represents an antichrist impact and influence in the world. And I think what we need to notice here is that the warning is that the destruction is the dragon's goal and deception is his main method. And the more that he can keep someone deceived without them realizing it, the more destruction he can do in our lives and the more that he can deceive the world, those who are not sealed by the Lamb. Again, C.S. Lewis says in Screwtape Letters, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. I think this is subtle deception that's worked at all levels in the world around us. We saw last week, of course, the first beast was the one who used the power structures of the world to announce who he is. I think in the second beast, he uses those same kinds of things, power structures, whether it is political, economic, social, and yes, even religious, to impact deceptively and deceive the people of God and to deceive people in the world. And in fact, one of the most, clearly one of the manifestations of the false prophet is in false teachers and even false leaders in the church. That's kind of one of the ways that is most subtle. And if you think about it, it actually uh, makes a lot of sense. If you're going to try to deceive and you're going to try to get at the heart of attacking God's people, what better way to do it than from inside rather than from outside? I think an example of the way that he does this is through the deceptive leading of false teachers. And I think when we, when we look at the New Testament, we realize that we see uh, warnings all over the place about false religious leaders and teachers. Right? If you read through the New Testament, you know this. Jesus confronted the religious leaders of the time, called them a den of vipers, whitewashed tombs. He called them wolves in sheep's clothing, among other things. Paul constantly writes to the churches that he writes to in the New Testament about being on guard for false teaching. So does James and John and other New Testament writers. It was a reality then, and it's a reality now. I think one of the ways, and this is just by way of example this morning, out of a case in point, it's not the only way the beast does this subtly, but he owns, he tries to own the heart and the direction of the church. 
And we've seen this happen in many recent church scandals we've had in the modern day church. Sexual abuse, deception, spiritual abuse, embezzlement, abuse of power and conspiracies and cover-ups, false teaching, the list goes on and on and on. And for some of those, they've been some of the most notable church leaders in the world. And in some ways, what better way to deceive and to defame the name of Jesus than to get a hold of notable church leaders? You may have seen, in fact, an article that came out this past week about Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, He did an interview with uh, Vanity Fair, and it was published this past week. If you don't know who Jerry Falwell Jr. is, until recently he was president of Liberty University, one of the largest and most influential evangelical Christian colleges in the world. Um, and recently, because of some very public moral failures in his past, over the past couple of years that have come to light, he was asked to step down as president of the university. Now, the headlines, of course, as the media has grabbed onto these headlines, have been all over the place as far as talking about, here's, another, here's yet another Christian leader who is engaged in a moral failure. Uh, those Christians are hypocrites and all the rest, right? And in his interview with Vanity Fair, though, what was probably the most astounding part about the entire interview is he said this, And I quote, he said, because of my last name, people think I'm a religious person. I am not. Now, his reference to his last name, of course, is a reference to Falwell being his last name, which became well-known as a result of his father, Jerry Falwell Sr., uh, who was a pastor, very involved activist, or very involved, uh, I should say, uh, evangelical political activist, especially during the 70s and 80s. He was the one who established Liberty University. And no matter what you may think about him, Jerry Sr. always claimed to have a faith in Jesus. And so when it comes to Junior, many people just assumed, okay, Junior is also just like his dad, right? He follows Jesus and he does all these other things and he has a faith just like his father did and those kinds of things. So to hear, so for many people, to hear him say in an interview, people think I'm religious but I'm actually really not, I'm actually really not a Christian was shocking for a lot of people. However, if you've been paying attention to Junior's life and really some of the things he's said and done, maybe it's not much of a surprise, or maybe it's less of a surprise. However, here's the kicker. He was president of a university that identified as a Christian university all the way through. I mean, Liberty University, if you know anything about it, is not a university that's like, we were founded by a group of Christians 200 years ago, and that's kind of our heritage, but we don't really practice those things anymore. Or we have Christian in our name, but it's in in name only, that kind of thing. Liberty University, I think part of their mission statement is something to the degree of, our goal is to form people in the image of Christ, form our students in the image of Christ. So they're focused on discipleship as well as kind of academia. It's a big part of their identity identity and understanding of what they do. They have regular chapel and worship services. In fact, Junior was responsible for overseeing all of that. In many cases, he spoke at those worship services and those chapel meetings and those kinds of things. And you get to a place where you ask then, how did he get to where he was without any amount of faith? Without even being a Christian, he's the leader of the largest evangelical Christian university in the nation and probably the world. Well, the answer is deception, both on the part of maybe himself to some degree, but really on the part of the people who elevated and enabled him to be there. You see, he was hired, when he was originally hired, he was hired to help turn around the university. He was hired at a place where Liberty was at financial ruin. They were at a place where they were almost ready to close their doors, according to some accounts, within a few years. And so they brought him in to turn the whole thing around. And he did a great job at doing that, by the way. Financially speaking, admissions went up. Uh, the, the university turned around almost within the first couple of years, and it became very influential. In fact, I think they almost had, I think they had a, a football team ranked in the top 25 this past year even, right? So he hit like all his bases, everything, even having a great college football team, right? Everything a university wants. Money, admissions, it was doing great from that perspective. And all that success financially and all the status and enrollment, and they were even a place that was known as kind of their influence politically. They had a a voice politically in American politics, and so all that political influence had a way of hiding many of the red flags of Junior's leadership that should have been recognized before it got to the implosion level that it got to. And here's a lot of what happened is that it seemed like Many people believe that, okay, we'll overlook some of those things because the ends justify the means. If we can get this university to the place where it needs to be, yeah, there's going to be some things we have to overlook character-wise, and there's going to be some corners that we have to cut, and yeah, there might not be full integrity and character involved in this, but at least we'll get to a place where we have this influential Christian university again in our nation. And yet what happened in the end is that 
the character and integrity imploded in the end. And you're almost at a place now where the name and the fame of Jesus throughout is being mocked and ridiculed again because of those who overlooked it, because of deception. And the question is, of course, how did it get to this point? Like, I believe the story of Falwell Jr. reveals more about the deception in the church than it does really about the deception of Falwell himself. I'm not the only one who believes that. Russell Moore wrote an article this past week in Christianity Today reflecting on this. And he says this in the article. He says, For Jesus, the congruence between the inner and the outer, the heart and the mouth, the motivations and the behavior, the public and the private, is a crucial matter of integrity before God. The warnings were needed, Jesus told us, because hypocrisy is, by definition, crafty and hidden. Wolves look like lambs, which is why they are able to ravage the flock. Hypocrisy typically leaves people vulnerable to deception and predation precisely because it is so carefully hidden. I often find churches or ministries unable to discover horrific things done in their ministries because they assume that the evildoers in their church give off a creepy vibe or have a supervillain's sinister laugh. The most dangerous hypocrites, though, are those who are actually skilled at hypocrisy, at pretense, at hiding, at mirroring the look of true fidelity. And look, as we see this, especially that last part there, hypocrisy and mirroring the look of true fidelity, I think this is what we see presented to us with the activity of the beast. And recognizing the deception before it becomes a destruction is part of the key to understanding why God gives us the book of Revelation in the first place. In a, lot of the, in a lot of ways, these questions are exactly what the whole book of Revelation was written for. Not to predict the future according to some codes, but to remain faithful in the present. And in order to do that, we would need to be able to recognize the deceptions from the truth to be able to follow the Lamb faithfully in the world rather than the dragon. And the big reason why the original audience received this book is that they were trying to figure out how do I respond to Roman power and what is going on around me and these pressures that I'm feeling to, 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 to compromise my faith because of persecution or temptation, where is it all coming from? And God pulls back the curtain for us here and shows us exactly what's going on. Be on guard and be aware of the deception that comes at you from all different angles. And the challenge was to stay faithful to Jesus in the midst of that. And so the question for us is, how do you stay faithful? How do you recognize the deception, where the deception comes from? And I think what this brings us to is really the application of this chapter and really what gets the headline of this chapter. Of course, I'm talking about the reference to the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. So this also happens, I will say this, this also happens to be one of the most divisive parts of the book of Revelation because of the interpreted interpretations of the mark of the beast and all the focus we get involved in this and that kind of thing. And I want to say ahead of time, I, I know we've talked about how you know, uh, Revelation is, is, is one of those books that a lot of people want to avoid because they get frustrated or overwhelmed by this. And I think this is one of the reasons why, this passage in particular, um, among some others, is that people, uh, is that people uh, often approach this or have been taught to approach this almost like a puzzle or a code that needs to be deciphered in order to understand it. And so it's either too overwhelming or too scary to figure out, and they kind of throw their hands up and say, you know what, if God really wanted us to understand this, why did he make it so difficult? <laughs> Maybe you felt that way before. I've heard people say that to me all the time about the book of Revelation. And look, I agree. Remember, though, this book is called the book of Revelation. It's an apocalypse, a, revela a revelation. So why would God give us a book called Revelation only to conceal things from us, to hide things from us? In fact, he wouldn't. God reveals the truth that we need to know in this book, and the problem is that we tend to make it harder than it needs to be. And that's how I want to approach this with the time we have left. It's how we interpret Revelation 13. That's often a primary culprit in this chapter because what we know is the Antichrist and the mark of the beast sends us in all kinds of wild directions. But I want to tell you this morning that it comes back to Christ and context again. And I want to show you that Christ and context and the way that we approach interpretation of this chapter in particular is going to pay dividends. You're going to see the value in this here as we get into it. So let's start here. We see that the mark of the beast is referred to as a mark on the hand or a forehead there in verse 18. Now considering context, is there another place where we have seen a mark on foreheads in this book? Right? Considering context. Have we seen this before? If you're saying, yes, Revelation chapter 7, the seal of the Lamb, then you're exactly right. We went through this uh, several weeks ago. 
And if you remember Revelation chapter 7, there's an entire chapter dedicated to this scene where the seal of the Lamb is presented to those who are before the throne of God. In other words, those who are in Christ. The 144,000 as well as the myriads who are, wor- who are worshiping there at the throne before the Lamb. An entire chapter is dedicated to it. There's all this pomp and circumstance that goes into it too. An angel comes out of heaven and he stops the world in its tracks. He stops the judgment from the four corners of the earth. And in a loud voice announces that he's come to, that he's come to, to seal those who are in, uh, or come to protect those who are sealed uh, by the lamb from judgment. And then we see, almost with deliberate and, and painstaking detail, the 12,000 are sealed, the 12,000 are sealed from all the tribes and the names of Israel representing the people of God. And then there's an eruption of a worship service and a celebration of the salvation that comes from the Lamb and the seal that has been given to those who are the people of the Lamb. And then there's not just one amen, but two amens at the end of it, right? In other words, what's being said here is pay attention to this. This matters. This is important. If you're in your Bible, you're highlighting it. You're, under, you're underlining it. You're writing stars in the margins. This is so important. And fast forward to Revelation 13, and we see one reference to a mark of the beast, and that gets more attention than that ever gets when you talk about the book of Revelation. And look, part of the point of this is that we're to understand the mark of the beast in the context of the mark of the lamb, the seal of the lamb. And here's here's why that matters. Is that what this shows us is that the mark of the beast reminds us of the necessity of the seal of the lamb. Okay? So just like the seal of the lamb, as we said before, is likely an invisible seal that represents the salvation of Jesus, this mark of the beast probably represents the very same thing, an invisible mark on those who have rejected the seal of the Lamb, who rejected the kingship of the Lamb. It's not directly referring to probably a visible mark on a forehead or a credit card or or a shot or a barcode on somebody's head, right? Those things probably have much more in common with science fiction than they do with actual biblical imagery. And it's not referring to a literal 666 that's tattooed on people's foreheads either. There's been a lot of speculation about what the number 666 means, including, you know, kind of doing math and formulas called gematria. I don't know if you've seen this before, but gematria is basically the practice of taking, like, letters in an alphabet, assigning a numerical value to it based on the order, and then kind of adding those numbers up to spell out someone's name. That if you just kind of, and and people get thrown off, I think, by the word calculate, so they feel like they've got to do this in some calculation that will reveal to them the name of the Antichrist. And with some manipulation of numbers and letters, depending on if you're looking at Greek or Latin or Hebrew or English, it may point to somebody who is identified as a central figure as the Antichrist, like Nero or Hitler or somebody else who's to come. It's entertaining. You can Google all that stuff. It's entertaining. I don't think it's very accurate, though. Instead, if we consider context again, think about the number 666. Do we see that number show up anywhere else in the book of Revelation? Well, we see it in reference to the number seven. We know the number seven represents God's complete purposes and his activity in the world. Seven churches represents God's people in the world. Seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. Of course, all of which get their rooting in the seven days of creation, God's process and plan in the world. And when you look at 666, what you see, I believe, the best interpretation of that is to interpret this as something that represents something as being not complete. And when you see it, it's represented as the number of the beast and the number of man, which is a reference to the world that the beast and the man rule together in opposition to God. You've got God's perfect purposes, represented by seven. You've got the man and the beast's purposes and what they do in the world, represented by six, something that is incomplete, that falls short, that might look like it is something, but in the end is incomplete and broken. To talk more context, if you go back to the ancient serpent's temptation from the beginning, back in Genesis chapter 2, the temptation from the serpent was what to Adam and Eve? It wasn't just the fruit, it was the fruit, but what was behind the fruit? What did the, the ancient serpent, as Revelation chapter 12 says, say to Adam and Eve? He said to them, God knows if you eat of this, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And when you get back to this place, what you realize is that the very same thing that ancient serpent has been doing since the beginning, he continues to do all the way to the end. 
tempting man to replace God, tempting man to rule over God's authority, to throw God's authority down and to rule in his own authority. And in this place, as we look at it, and as we understand this, in even more light, we see in verse 14, it refers to those who are getting the mark of the beast as the ones who dwell on the earth. We've already seen the contrast in this book between those who dwell on the earth and those who dwell in heaven. Those who dwell in heaven are said to be God's people. These are the people of the Lamb, which doesn't mean that they just dwell in the sky somewhere. right? Heaven is meant to be understood as the place where God dwells. So in other words, they're dwelling with God versus those who don't dwell with God, who are not a part of the land. They dwell on the earth. They're called earth dwellers because they've put their hopes in the kingdoms of the earth and what the earth can give them and what the world can give them and all those kinds of things. They've been knit by whatever it may be to understanding the earth as their home, as C.S. Lewis said earlier. And so they're defined by their home, which earth dwellers are defined, or heaven dwellers are defined by the lamb, earth dwellers are defined by the beast. And this is how Satan works. If he can deceive you long enough to place all your things and all your trust in the things of this world, and only think about God in terms of how you can get more in this world, he is working his deception in keeping you earthly-minded and knitted to this world. And I believe that's in large part of what this chapter is saying. It's not necessarily saying there's going to be somebody who runs up to you with a brand of 666 and brands something on your forehead. You'd run away from that. It's much more subtle, and because it's much more subtle, it's much more dangerous than that. It owns your heart. That is the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is seen in contrast to the mark of the lamb. Anyone who does not have the mark or the seal of the lamb has the mark of the beast. Now let's talk about, quickly, this reference to Antichrist for a minute, a word that's not actually used here, although it is used in other places in the Bible, like 1 John chapter 2, I believe, for example. Uh, But in all of this, I think what we need to realize again is that the title Antichrist is in reference to the original thing, Christ. The anti-part is merely a contrast to the opposite of Christ. And my my fear in all this, again, is that we often pay more attention to the anti instead of the Christ. The Antichrist gets our attention when in reality what this is supposed to do again is to point us back to Christ. And I know, I know there's fascination with the anti and it's probably the same reason why people like horror movies and they stare too much at car wrecks. There's a morbid curiosity that goes along with this, right? Or maybe a need to feel like I've got to be prepared in case the Antichrist comes and tricks me. If that last part is you, I have some encouragement for you. And this needs to be understood as a bigger part of this book. That God, again, is giving us truth so that we are able and equipped to see the deception. The point is, see Christ, see the Lamb, so that you can clearly see the Antichrist impact and influence in the world. Which I don't believe is just one figure. I believe it's actually an Antichrist influence personified by the beast that has been operating Uh, at least since the beginning of the church age and continues to operate until Jesus comes back. And so that Antichrist influence is everywhere around us. It's in different places. But of course, as we look more at Jesus and we understand the truth of Christ, we understand what God is teaching us in the book of Revelation as it's revealed before us, we are more able to see the deceptive ways in which the Antichrist, the beast, moves. So instead of focusing on avoiding the Antichrist as one person figure at the end of time, instead we're to believe and understand that the influence of Satan in the world is an Antichrist influence. And what this challenges us to remember is that throughout history, Satan has has done and will continue to to mimic uh, Christ's kingdom in a way that deceives people. He will continue to mimic Things that promise what, you know, Augustine said, we have an empty hole in our heart that can only be filled by God. Satan will continue, the dragon will continue to try to fill things with that that we believe may satisfy us instead of Jesus. And if he can keep us away from filling that God-sized hole with God himself, he's succeeded in what he's doing. And in most cases, from his perspective, and in most cases, it is done subtly, which makes it so difficult. So the question is, where is your heart? Who do you worship? Where is your delight? If you are sealed by the Lamb and and your delight is in Him and His kingdom and His home, you don't need to worry that the Antichrist is going to get you like the boogeyman around the corner and stamp you with his mark somehow. When you face temptation to give into the word, uh, to, to the things of this world, to make those things our home with power and money and status and comfort, those things are much more 
alluring and dangerous to our hearts because they become traps of deception themselves. It doesn't mean in every case that those things are wrong, but we have to continually ask ourselves, what is this doing to my heart? How is this forming my heart in reference to Jesus? Because these are often subtle traps laid by the dragon through his beasts. And again, this is the point of all this. I'll keep saying this every week, Jesus and his kingdom. If you are sealed by the lamb and you live from Jesus' kingdom, the mark of the beast cannot touch you. You don't see anybody in this, in this uh, book that has both marks. You either have one or the other. And if you're sealed by the lamb, you are sealed by the lamb for eternity through his salvation. I, um, I had a friend several years ago, I'll close with this story, um, who grew up as a son of a magician. And uh, he was a Christian guy, and, and, and he was the kind of guy who could like perform a real magic trick. Like not just the ones that like you Google or look up on YouTube and you got a little card trick that you can learn in five minutes and impress your friends at parties or whatever. He's a guy who actually knew how to do these things because he grew up with his dad being a performing a professional magician. And so he would always have like some kind of prop on him and some kind of deck of cards or something. And, and many times he would just kind of spring it on people in public places. At times that I've been with him, it's, just, it's fun to watch. Uh, but he would especially do this when we'd go to lunch or something, and he would, he would, he would uh, uh, you know, perform a trick for the waiter or the server who was serving us at the table. And I remember that he would always, you know, he performed this card trick, and all of us would be like, our minds would be blown. He always had a new one, by the way. I was around him. I saw him do several of them. I don't know, maybe, maybe up to 100 of them. And he never repeated it. He always had a new one. But he would do something that if you are a magician, you know, is like basically the cardinal sin at the, end of his, uh, at the end of his trick, his illusion. He would explain how the illusion worked. He would show you exactly how it worked every single time. And of course, he would ask like, and one time I, I remember telling him like, hey, magicians aren't supposed to do that. Like after the first or second time I saw him do that, like you're supposed to, I heard a magician say like, that's, you're not supposed to sell out, you know, the, the illusion. And he would explain it and he would say, you know, this is the point, is that the illusion is deception. It's a trick of the mind. And once you see clearly how I did what I did and how I tricked your mind and how I deceived you, once you see the truth, in other words, of the illusion, the illusion goes away and it's not nearly as astounding and alluring or confusing or exciting or whatever it may be. And he would use that as an opportunity to talk about the importance of truth and understanding what we believe and those kinds of things as a Christian. And I think what we see here is in the same way the book of Revelation is showing us from the first part of the book, as we focus our eyes and our minds on Christ and the Lamb and his kingdom, we see the truth in the illusions that come towards us. And it doesn't matter what the illusion is. Once you see the truth, the illusion is not nearly as deceptive, confusing, exciting, alluring, whatever it may be in the world. And look, this is the big part of the book of Revelation. It's revealed to us so that we would see clearly what are the realities and what's the truth behind it all. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning. I pray for those this morning who are, uh, those of us who, who know the Lamb and are sealed by the Lamb. Lord, would we truly cling to the reality that the truth will set us free. The truth sets us free from deception and fear and confusion. And so, Lord, I pray that you would clearly speak to us this morning. You've not meant your word to be confusing. You've not meant your word to, to cover. You've meant your word to reveal, and especially in a book called Revelation. And so, Lord, would you reveal to us your intention behind your words so that they would bear fruit and life in our lives, Lord, that they would bring encouragement, steadfastness, and faithfulness in the face of, in the face of whatever we endure. Lord, we know that it's not everybody's Design, it's not your will for every person to endure harsh persecution like what the first century did or what our brothers and sisters may be in other places in the world enduring. And it is heartbreaking and horrifying to imagine those things. And we pray, Lord, that you would sustain them and sustain their faithfulness as they face those situations. But even for us who don't experience that on a daily basis, we still experience opposition, Lord, we experience doubts, we experience difficulty, we experience suffering and loss and trials. And so Lord, we ask that your truth would sustain us, that we would draw hope from the fact that what truly matters is that we are sealed by the Lamb. We would make a big deal out of the things that you make a big deal out of. And that we wouldn't get lost in the mud and the mire and maybe even the things that, that the dragon wants to deceive us about.
And so, Lord, we pray for, pray for clarity. We pray for an understanding of your goodness and love towards us, that it would spur us on towards faithfulness and perseverance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thanks for joining us on the uh, last Sunday of the first month of 2022. And I know uh, at the same time, this has maybe been a difficult month for us for many different reasons because there's been a lot of sickness and those kinds of things. But as we were reminded yesterday during our men's breakfast, if you were there with us, and, and Brent said this a little bit earlier as well, is that he, in the trials and the suffering and the difficulty, if we draw near to God, we see the blessings of God in the midst of that. If those things, those trials in our lives that are there cause us in the end to draw nearer to God, in the end it is blessing. And so I hope that you were able to see the blessings of God this past week, or past month I should say, the first month of this new year. And as we continue into this year, my, that would be my prayer for you, that even in the trials, he is there, he is faithful, and he is wanting you to see him, and he is wanting uh, he's wanting uh, himself to be known to you. So hopefully you see that as you move forward. Um, we have uh, the Vites, who are our prayer partners here this morning as we leave. Uh, if, if you need somebody who, uh, to pray with you and to pray for you, they'll be happy to pray with you as we leave here this morning. We also have prayer request cards that are located on the table with the cross on the back in there. And if you would fill out one of those prayer request cards, drop it in the offering stands as you leave here this morning. We make sure that we pray over those as a church. We have three different groups, teams that pray over those, our staff, our elders, as well as our prayer team. And we consider it a joy to continue to, to lift those burdens up to the Lord on your behalf, side by side with you. So we have a great week. Enjoy the beautiful afternoon that God has given us. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.